The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. Well, good morning, everyone. As the children are exiting, would you please uh, get your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 8. You can also turn to Acts chapter 6. We're going to look at both today, Acts 6 and Acts 8. And if you're new here, welcome. Uh, One thing you should know about our church is that what we do uh, typically is we will preach through the Word of God, as as every church that believes in Jesus Christ ought to do. We'll preach through the Word of God typically one book at a time, chapter by chapter, but occasionally we'll take a break like we're doing this week to be in a series about something specific that the Lord has laid on our hearts as, as a team here. And, and specifically right now, we're looking at how to know and do the will of God, which is a big deal. How to know and respond to God's leading and, and to do what he would want us to do, what he requires us to do. And, and, and in that, to experience his love and his life and to experience God himself. Last week, we continued this series on knowing and doing his will, and, when we, and we were left with this kind of twofold idea. One, that our highest priority is to love God, right? To love God with all our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. And yet, on the other hand, it is God who initiates this love relationship. It is God who has loved us first. He is the initiator. He pursues us. He draws us to himself, and he is jealous for our affection, our attention, our action. God loves you. Do you know that? God loves you. Can can you humor me for just a moment and say out loud, God loves me. God loves me. You know, I think sometimes we forget that. We get in this this mode of just dutiful service to God. We, We attend church. We maybe are part of a Bible study or something, but we're in this mindset of just struggling to comply, struggling to, to walk this straight and narrow path to fulfill our duty to God. And make no mistake, scripture is clear. Psalm 19 is an example of this. It tells us that the precepts of God are a warning to us. They're like guardrails for us, but there is also great reward in keeping them. But I think sometimes in in this keeping of the the precepts and the law and the word of God, we forget how, how loving and how tender God is toward us. We forget the sweetness of what we saw last week as we looked at the life of of Hagar, as God pursued her in the wilderness, as he revealed that he saw her in her need and as he provided for her so specifically and compassionately. We forget the love of Jesus as he poured out his blood for us on a cross, as he forgave our sins at his own expense out of deep love for us. God is so good. That is so good. And the wonder of this Christian faith is that any effort that we put towards loving God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, it's just a response. It's a response to the love that we have been shown, how deeply we've been loved by him. And let me tell you, his love is so much more than what we offer in response. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. And what the word of God makes clear is that this in this love relationship with God, as we as followers of Jesus uh, get close to him and abide in him in relationship, we will come to not only know him, love him, believe in him, but here's what this morning is all about. As we learn to trust and obey God in this love relationship, he invites us into his work. Yes, yes, I said work. This is one of the most exciting things about a walk with Jesus is that by his spirit and as image bearers of God, God calls us to be involved with him in the work that he is doing. 
This is from the beginning, from before the fall. Remember Adam in the garden before sin had entered the scene and he is there working in the garden. He's tending to the garden and he's naming the animals, working alongside his creator, fulfilling the creative intent of God. And now for us that are in Christ, for those of us that know Jesus, we continue this work, aligning ourselves and walking in the work and the will of God. Jesus tells his disciples this before he goes to the cross. I told you to turn to Acts, but this is in John chapter 14. The evening before the crucifixion, Jesus is, he's gathered his disciples around him and he tells them this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And listen to this. He says, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the father. That's striking. It's, it's, it's hard for us to believe that greater works than these. And because he's going to the father. And then he says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And then he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I'll ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. The Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, his Spirit, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot see. I want you to note that. The world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Earlier in the this, this same passage, it's the same interaction, this meal and then discussion with his disciples afterward, he tells them that it's better that he leaves. And he's talking not just about the crucifixion, but he's talking about at, after his resurrection and ascension, he's going to go to the right hand of the Father. And at Pentecost, he's going to, to send his spirit to fall upon these believers to empower them for the work. His spirit will indwell believers, all who profess faith in Jesus Christ, who believe in him and what he's done. They will receive his spirit. And he says to them, it's better that I go. In other words, it's better that you have the spirit within you than to have Jesus in the flesh beside you. It's hard to believe, isn't it? It would be pretty awesome to have Jesus beside us. How many of you would rather have Jesus as your pastor than Pastor Mark? Hope, hope all of you. Right, but think about it. I mean, to have Jesus walking beside you, like if you're, if you're hungry and you're short on food, he can multiply bread to feed you. It's amazing. If your dog is sick and, and dies, I assume he could resurrect your dog. Like if, if your cat is sick and dies, he could help you bury that thing, right? <laughs> Sorry, cat people. <laughs> Forgive me. <laughs> But he says it's better. He says it's better that I go. Why? Because he's sending his spirit. It's like the, the democratization of, of the work of Jesus. It's spread abroad to believers in Jesus. We're invited into his work by the power of his spirit. And we see this in the early church. I love the book of Acts. And so we were in the Old Testament last week. We're in the New Testament this week. And what we see is within weeks of Jesus's ascension, the church grows, it multiplies. It goes from just a few believers, 120 gathered together in an upper room to 10,000 within weeks and months. This is absolutely explosive, dynamic church growth, and it is fueled by the Spirit of God empowering three things. Number one, empowering words. The, the, the disciples of Jesus, the followers of Jesus, those early Christians are daily learning from the scripture, reading the scripture, and talking about the scripture with one another. And it's not just some kind of holy huddle where they get together and have their Bible study and that's it. No, they are going out after talking about the word, they're going out and they're preaching it in the temple and they're going house to house and they're going into their places of work and business and they're sharing from the word of God what they've been learning and proclaiming Jesus with boldness and many are coming to faith. Words, secondly, wonders. 
Not only is the word moving in power, but as the apostles are proclaiming this word, proclaiming God's word, God is backing up their claims and he's validating their claims with these mind-blowing signs and wonders. The lame walk, the blind see, needs are miraculously met. People are are diving into Peter's shadow just to to be healed from diseases and afflictions. See, Satan loves to afflict people. He loves to bring disease and death, and he is an agent of these things. But, but here, through the apostles, through ordinary men, yielded men and women yielded to the Spirit of God through the early church, Jesus is beating back the darkness with power and with wonder. Words, wonders, thirdly, works. God is empowering the Word, and he's revealing himself through wonders. But the third thing he's empowering in the early church is these loving works. The new followers of Jesus, they take seriously the words of Jesus and the lifestyle of Jesus. And one of the primary ministries of the church from day one is to care for the poor and the needy, the ignored and the outcast. The church is meeting both spiritual and practical needs. The church is living on a mission to love the world just as Christ has loved them. See, the gospel is not just something we get to keep to ourselves. It's a coincidence, I think, in our language, but this word gospel has go in it, doesn't it? Because he loves us, God invites us to join him in his mission to seek and save the lost. And that's a wonderful, exciting thing. But what does that look like? I said last week we saw the example of God's love towards Hagar in the wilderness on this road, actually through Gaza, as she's on her way to Egypt with her child. This morning, we're going to look at another passage, primarily in Acts 8, in which a man named Philip, not to be confused with Philip, the disciple of Jesus, this is actually a a different Philip, someone who was a a deacon in the early church, but an ordinary man, not one of the 12, not an apostle, no, he's rather a, a Jewish Greek believer who in the early church, in the days after Jesus's crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and then Pentecost, He came to believe in Jesus at some point in all that. And he had received the Holy Spirit. And he was beginning to spread that good news that he had received. And as you read Acts, if you see the life of Philip, you see him do some pretty extraordinary things during his life and ministry. And we could think to ourselves, well, well, I'm not like that. But we need to see where Philip came from. He's simply an ordinary guy, recognized for his good character, who, who as far as we know, his formal service in the church starts with waiting tables for widows. I want you to see this. This is in Acts chapter six, starting in verse one. This is in the days of the early church. It says, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, so the church is multiplying, and growth can be a little bit messy. I I think you all understand that. When a church grows or community grows, it, it can get uncomfortable for some. And it says, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So who are these Hellenists? So basically, the Jewish people, through occupations and persecution, all kinds of things, had spread abroad over the whole world, the Greek-speaking world at that time. But during festivals and and, uh, holidays, many would come back into places like Jerusalem. This this dispersion, the diaspora of the Jewish people um, was all over the known world. But then, as a result of that, you had kind of two cultural categories. When the, when the Hebrew people would come together in Jerusalem, you had the, the Hebraic Jewish people who were native to Israel. They really uh, loved the customs and the culture and they embraced that and the heritage and they were the people of the land. And then you had the uh, Jewish people from the rest of the world who had really taken on Greek customs, Greek language, Greek mannerisms. And when they would come back, 
to worship in Jerusalem, there was a distinct difference between these groups. And so we see one of the, the early challenges of the church was this ethnic division within the Christian church as the widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And it says a complaint arose within their fellowship. Complaints arise in churches, don't they? Uh, this is like in modern day, they're getting a bunch of one-star reviews on Google Maps and they gotta do something about it. It says in the 12, summoned the full number of the disciples and says, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, when we read that, it could strike us as, what, these guys think they're too good to serve. These guys think that, that they uh, shouldn't humble themselves. Jesus was a servant after all, but I think they're saying something really important. There's a lot of work to go around and God has especially called them to minister through the teaching and the preaching of the word. That's something that I've, I've been convicted of is, is that my primary responsibility as a pastor is to be prepared in, in my character, my integrity, in my time in the word, in my time with the Lord to preach the word. But there is a lot of work to do within the church. There's a lot of, of work to be done. And, and so my encouragement to every one of you here would be to minister in the place that God has called you, whether that's in your family or your workplace, to do the work of the kingdom. And so here they say, we need to preach. And so we need someone else to serve these tables to meet this need. They do see the problem and they're determined to address it. He, it says, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And then these are who they chose. It says, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So they address the issue, and they address it by appointing Greek Christians to take the lead in fixing this problem. And so we see then that Philip, this is the first mention of him, as far as I know, this Philip, along with Stephen and others, are chosen. They're chosen for this task. Why? Because of their good reputation, because they're filled with the Spirit of God, and because they have wisdom. And this is the beginning of this, this ministry of deacons, of servants, formal servants within the church. And I want you to note that for, for all of us who aspire to something within the church, these men esteemed by the church for their reputation and their spirituality and their wisdom, they are servants primarily. Not with pay, not with a platform, they don't have a podcast, but rather their ministry is pots, pans, and plates. As far as we know, Philip doesn't have any formal religious education, certainly not in Christian doctrine because that didn't really exist yet. He doesn't have a seminary degree. He, he hasn't done an evangelism 101 training. He is just a faithful servant in the church, a, simply a believer in Jesus Christ who is filled with the spirit of God and is determined to do the work of God around him, whether that's waiting tables or what we'll see in a moment, evangelizing the lost. But what happens next in Jerusalem is that persecution rises up against the church. And you'll remember Saul of Tarsus is leading the charge and arresting Christians and harassing Christians and making things very uncomfortable. In the midst of that, Stephen, one of these deacons, a companion of Philip's, he's stoned to death by a mob. And so the pressure in Jerusalem on that early church, it increases dramatically. But what happens to the church is, is counterintuitive. Instead of this pressure crushing the church, 
like dough being spread out and kneaded, the, the gospel goes out into the surrounding countryside, throughout Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the world, Arabia, Africa, you name it, because these crazy Christians, inspired by the Spirit of God and empowered by His Spirit, can't stop telling people about Jesus. And Philip is one of these. So he goes, and he goes into, in Acts chapter seven, you'll read this, he goes into uh, Samaria preaching the gospel. He quickly earns this reputation. He's known as Philip the Evangelist. And despite being an ordinary Hellenist, a servant, God backs up his preaching with signs and wonders and healings and deliverance from demonic forces. And this is what I love about Philip. He's just going and doing the work. Meanwhile, the, the professional Christians, Peter and John, they're back in Jerusalem. They're trying to, to get the church to work. They're trying to figure all this stuff out with the, the persecution ongoing. They stay in Jerusalem. They're, they're busy with, with trying to do church and he's going out and being the church. Certainly they're all being the church. I don't take anything away from Peter and John there, but he goes forth as salt and light, busying himself with telling everyone who will listen the good news. And so through his work, Peter and John hear that the gospel is spreading like wildfire in Samaria, a place they wouldn't expect and they can hardly believe it. And so they go and they visit the villages and they find that there are believers there. And so they lay hands on those believers and the spirit of God falls upon the Samaritans just as it did on them at Pentecost. I could preach uh, through Acts for, for days. Actually, we preached through Acts for like two years straight just recently. So <laughs> I'm gonna stop here at Acts chapter eight as we get there. But it's incredibly exciting, isn't it? To think about this movement of God, this explosive growth as the church, you see the incredible transforming momentum of God as he saves thousands. But what has stood out to me this week is we sometimes have this picture of these mass conversions, just hundreds at a time coming to faith in Jesus. And maybe that happened some as it did on the day of Pentecost. But most of the time, what's actually taking place on the ground is ordinary believers, individuals are following the leading of the Holy Spirit and they are sharing the good news one to one, two to one, with anyone who will listen as God leads them. Here we are in Acts chapter eight. Let's see. We're gonna pick up this particular passage starting in verse 26. It says, now the angel, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Now this is the same road, the same path that, that Gen in Genesis that Hagar was on with Ishmael as they fled into the wilderness. They're moving towards Egypt. We actually have a map where you can kind of see the, the journey of Philip during his, his missionary days. And there at the very bottom of it, you can see that he takes off when he hears this instruction, rise and go to the south to go down towards the way toward Egypt through Gaza, a desert place. Now, this is a famous place now, obviously. We're, we're all familiar with its, its location. If you've been paying any attention to the news, certainly the eyes of the world are on, on Gaza. But, but what my prayers have been centered on right now is that God would bring peace, that he would intervene, and that God would bring spirit-filled people like Philip into that region right now to bring the gospel good news to people who desperately need it, Israelis and Palestinians who desperately need the intervention of Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit through faithful believers. Here, Philip's called into this place that, that's a wilderness and it says this in verse 27, he rose and he went. This is kind of the, the hardest part, isn't it? Right there, get up, go, step out into the work. Forsake your agenda, your checklist, your comfort, go. 
And so he wanders on this wilderness road alone with no further instruction from the Lord other than to to head south into the desert. But here's what I'm certain Philip is doing as he's walking, as he's journeying into the wilderness. He's praying and he's watching. Lord, why did you bring me here? What do you have me here for? Show me what's next. What do you have in store for me today here? I'm ready for it. And then he looks in the distance and he sees someone in the distance. It says, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and he was returning seated in his chariot and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. So Philip looks and in the distance, he sees something unusual. He sees an African man dressed in royal attire in the distance and it says that this man is a eunuch. Do y'all know what a eunuch is? Okay, I'll just tell you. Uh, A a eunuch, he has been castrated at some point in his life, a practice that was was common in royal households of ancient kingdoms for a number of potential reasons, sometimes by choice, sometimes by custom. Uh, But generally, the theory was that that eunuchs would, due to their sterility, they'd make safe palace guards, especially for the the royal households, the women of royal households. And additionally, because a, a eunuch would not have children of their own at any point, they were not like a hereditary threat to the kingdom. And so often eunuchs would be, would be placed in positions of authority. If they were skilled and wise, they would be placed in positions of authority and influence within a kingdom to have a place of prominence. We saw this in the peers of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now we don't know if they were eunuchs, but we know that they were surrounded by, in their service, surrounded by eunuchs in the court of Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. In any case, this Ethiopian is in such a role and he's a treasurer not just any treasurer, the treasurer of the the queen, the ruler of Ethiopia, Candace, this large East African nation near the Red Sea. This is a 2,500 mile journey from Jerusalem. If you follow the the Nile, which is how you would uh, go from Ethiopia to Jerusalem, you'd follow the Nile to its tributary, the Blue Nile, and then eventually after 2,500 miles of journeying, he would be home. But here, attired in his fine clothes, going through the wilderness, it says he's seated in a chariot. Now, a chariot is is an unusual mode of transportation. Most people wouldn't have a chariot unless they were uh, really well off or if they were in some kind of military expedition, but here he is. And so I want you to picture this. Picture, I I don't know, like a really nice vehicle in the desert. Picture um, like a 2007 Volvo SUV or something like that. You know, something something really nice. Um, Or a Tesla. I guess everyone drives those now. So what's the nice car now? Don't know. Here's the point. Philip looks. He's praying, he's watching, he's been sent, and he sees in the distance this man in his chariot. And I wonder what would go through his mind in this moment. I don't know if this this eunuch is accompanied by others or not, it doesn't say. But his eyes, Philip's eyes, are locked on this eunuch seated in the chariot, and he sees him reading in the distance. And I wonder what's going through Philip's head in this moment. If it were me, I'd be praying. He's been instructed to go south to this obscure place, and maybe he begins to wonder, is this it, Lord, is this it? Is this the moment that you've brought me here for? What do you want me to do? So Philip, standing at a distance, full of anticipation, he's ready to obey and he listens for God's next instruction. And it says in verse 29, the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. The spirit said, God speaks, God speaks. We'll talk next week and the week after about how to recognize his voice, but he still speaks. And to the believer, he leads us by his promised indwelling spirit. Philip is is guided not by a clap of thunder, not by a dream or a vision in this moment, but rather this this soft, what, what I would call the internally audible voice of God speaks to him and says, go over to 
this chariot, join it. How would you respond? At this moment, I know how I'd respond. I'd be like pacing back and forth, like, ah, are you sure? You know, my hands would start sweating. Uh, did I hear that right, Lord? Did I hear that right? Am I just in my own head again? I don't know what are my ideas and your ideas, Lord. I'm not sure. Is this really what you want me to do? Can you give me a sign? And meanwhile, God's like, I just spoke to you. Give me a sign. If you want me to talk to him, this is the kind of thing I do when I'm in these modes where I feel like the Lord's leading me, but I'm nervous. I'm like, uh, God, just make it easy. If you want me to talk to him, can you, can you have him notice me and invite me over? Something like that. Just some sign that I know it's going to be okay. The questions. And then the excuses, Lord, I, I don't know what to say. What, what if he's dangerous? What if he doesn't speak Greek? I'm, I'm scared. I can't do this. And this week alone, I was wrestling with this kind of situation a few times. Simple instructions from the Lord, but dealing with that internal debate. Anyone familiar with that internal debate? Yeah, you all have that? Okay. But in those moments, as I was wrestling with that, God graciously brought to mind some of the truths we've been studying. And number one, that God is love. That means his will is always best. He is perfect love. His will is always best. God is all knowing. That means his directions are always right. And God is all powerful. That means that even when I'm weak, which is always, he can enable me to do his will. He is all powerful. And so in my head, the Lord spoken to me a few times this week when I say, God, I don't know which way to go. The response of the spirit of God has been, but I do and I'm with you. God, I don't know how this is gonna turn out, but I do, and I'm with you. God, I can't do this, but I can, and I'm with you. Maybe Philip has learned not to have to have these kinds of dialogues with the Lord. Maybe he just trusts him no matter what and can jump out there and do it. Maybe he strengthens himself in the Lord. I don't know, but watch what he does. Watch the way he obeys. He's come to know that God's revelation is his invitation to join in the work of God. And so forsaking all his dignity, he does something that a grown man should not do unless he's chasing a ball. He runs, he runs to the chariot. It says, so Philip ran to him and heard him reading the Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? I can just picture the smile on Philip's face. Like, yeah, this is it. This is a layup right here, right out in the middle of the wilderness in this seeming chance encounter. This individual is reading the scriptures, not just reading, but he's longing to understand. And we've talked about this often over the last few weeks, how God involves us in his work. But some of the ways we recognize where God is at work is to watch and pray and see where is God working in the people around you? Where is God at work drawing people to himself, doing what only he can do? Because what we see in scripture is that there are things that only God does. Number one, only God draws people to himself. Only God. Number two, only God causes people to seek truth. Thirdly, only God can reveal spiritual truth. The world is in darkness, blind, and unable to hear apart from God's revelation and lastly, only God can convict the world rightly about sin and righteousness and judgment. Those are all on, on your notes. In other words, people don't seek God unless he is at work in their lives. That's the work he invites us into. So pray and pay attention and look to see where people in your life are being drawn towards Jesus. Ask spiritual questions, asking spiritual questions, experiencing conviction, starting to understand spiritual truth. That's where we see God at work. And that is his invitation to join him. Some of you, this is all brand new to you, but you've been drawn here to church. And you're not even sure why, but you, you know you want something. You're drawn to something. And I would tell you that that is the spirit of God drawing you to himself because he loves you. 
And in loving pursuit of you, he has brought you here for a reason. Philip has been led to the wilderness. He's made this connection that he's there for a reason and this is the reason. So he asks a follow-up question. He says, do you know what you're reading? And the response confirms that this isn't Philip's agenda at work. He's on God's schedule now. And he says, do you understand what you're reading? Verse 31, and he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, we don't know exactly how this, this Ethiopian got this scroll. In all likelihood, he's there in Jerusalem on this holy day, and he purchases this very expensive scroll from the prophet Isaiah, not necessarily knowing what it contains, but he's going to bring this back with him to Ethiopia, perhaps as a gift for the queen. But he's sitting there in his chariot. He has pulled his chariot to a stop because somehow God is powerfully drawing him. He can't help but stop and begin to unroll the scriptures and to read God's word. And he just happens to be reading from the perfect scripture at the perfect time. Verse 32. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Watch this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? I want you to remember that just weeks before this, Jesus Christ has suffered like a lamb led to the slaughter. He held his tongue while the Sanhedrin raged. He kept his peace as he was nailed to a cross, tortured and killed, the perfect lamb giving himself on the cross. This passage of scripture from Isaiah was written hundreds of years before the life of Jesus, and yet it is one of the clearest Christological passages in all of the Old Testament. This is the scroll that he has bought. This is the scroll that he has unraveled on this day, and this is the section that he is reading just as a disciple of Jesus approaches. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, do you know the word of God? Beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. I love this. This is it. Moment seized. I, I don't know where to go. I don't know how it will turn out. I don't know what to say. The Spirit of God, but I do, and I'm with you. And Philip, who's come to know and treasure the Word of God, he explains it all. He explains that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Scripture, that he is a substitute, has given himself for our sin, that he is risen, and that by believing in him, no longer leaning on our own good behavior, by leaning on what he's done, we can receive forgiveness of sins, blameless before God, adoption as sons and daughters. I've just said to you what this, this eunuch would have heard that day. And the question is, do you want that? Do you want to know that God Almighty looks upon you and says, your sins are forgiven? That's what he offers through the cross. And here we see, do you want this? The Ethiopian official, he has no doubt in his mind. Today, he believes. Today is his heavenly birthday. Today he is born again. And it says in verse 36, as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here's some water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. As a new believer, he wants to do what's been commanded of him. As an outward expression of this inward reality, they get out of the chariot, they walk into waist deep water. And this eunuch identifies with Christ in his death as Philip lowers him into the water. And then he is identified with Christ as he's raised to new life, water and tears mingling down his face. 
as he joins Christ's resurrection, forever changed. It says in verse 39, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus and he passed through and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. You know, this is interesting. Sometimes my excuse in discipleship is, or in evangelism is, if I've led someone to the Lord, I don't know if I have the capacity to handle what's next, you know? And here, in this case, led by the Spirit of God one day at a time, Philip doesn't actually concern himself with that. He simply delivers the good news and then he moves on to deliver it somewhere else. I trust and pray that God continue to walk with this Ethiopian eunuch, to minister to him and, and to, to raise him into maturity. And this man will go back and he will share this good news. He will rejoice in this good news and share it with anyone who will listen. Here's the point. We don't need to worry about what's next so much as what's now. Is God speaking to you today? What is he leading into you into? And will you respond obediently to walk with him today? He loves you and he invites you into his work because he loves you and he loves those around you so much that he would want to use you as a conduit to bring good news to others. Abide in him, watch him pray, obey and experience the joy of the Lord. You can see Moises on the stage, which means I'm coming to a conclusion, right? <laughs> but as, as we conclude, I just want to tell a story. I want to transport this to our, our, our life right now. Um, I, I mentioned this, I think last week, but two weeks ago on, on uh, Sunday, my son, six-year-old, prayed to receive Jesus, prayed to, to make Jesus his savior. And the next day, I had this opportunity, and I shared the story with permission, to, to go out to lunch with the, our church's banker, actually. And Mike goes throughout, one of our other pastors here. And we're at lunch. I've actually never met this man before. We've talked on the phone, but he's been serving the church for years and for years. Pastor Bill and Pastor Marty had poured into James, that's his name, um, to share and to sow gospel seeds in his life. And so we go to lunch with him to talk business and, and we talk for about two hours. Probably 15 minutes of that was about, about banking and, and the church and all that. The rest of the time we're sharing, we're just talking about life. And we're sharing about, about family and faith and all these kinds of things. And what becomes evident during the conversation is that, is that God is powerfully drawing James to himself. He's telling us that, that he's, he's begun to read scripture, that he's joined a Bible study, that he started watching church services online with his family, that, that he knows he needs to go to church. And, and he's describing this, that, that God's drawing him, but there's this, this gap, this separation. He's somehow, he's sensing, he's like, I'm not quite there yet conversation goes around and around and I'm praying that that's the benefit of having two people uh, going out and doing this evangelism work though that's not what we knew we were doing yet is that one can be praying while the other's talking and I, I'm praying as Mike's talking and sharing some stuff about our men's retreat and some other cool things and I'm praying and I'm asking Lord what are you doing here exactly what do you want in this interaction in this interface what, what do you want here show me if, if you want me to share more directly the good news or something like that Lord open open that opportunity and I'm praying and I'm watching and I'm paying attention to what's going on in the conversation and we're talking all around it. I just don't see it. I just don't see that, that, that opportunity. Until late in the conversation, James is relaying that he, he works as a EMT on the side as a volunteer. And he's just talking about his life and, and he's talking about the things that he's experienced in life and, and some of the hardships. And he says something that's so striking. He says, in my line of work, I see people go from life to death. And I'm like, this is it, you know? And I, I, I then I sense the spirit of God all over that conversation. And I say, James, you know what's so exciting about the work that I do? 
I get to watch people go from death to life. And I described to him, I say, just yesterday, my son prayed to receive salvation. And, and, and do you know what that means? Here's what he, he expressed that he understood, that God had made him for relationship with himself. That, that, that our sin has separated us from God and it's a gap that we cannot fill through religion, through going to church, through reading our Bible, through any of these things. It's a gap that can only be filled by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross to pay the price for our sins, to pay this penalty and to pay it in full. And all that is required is belief in him and what he's done. And in that we receive this resurrection, this eternal life. And I, I'm kind of explaining it. And then Mike jumps in and he explains it way better than me, way more clearly. And James responds and he's like, I see that. He's like, Man, I, just, I'm not, I, I just know that I'm just not quite there yet. And I say, have you ever prayed to receive Jesus as your savior? And he says, no, I haven't. And, and so I say, James, you feel like there's this big gap between you and the Lord, but can I tell you that the, the gap is, is more like this, isn't it? And I hold up my napkin. This is all that separates you is a step of faith across to express that you believe in what Jesus Christ has done for you. And today you can receive eternal life. And I say, do you want that? And he says, yes. I said, do you want that right now? And he's like, yes. And so we in Sweetwater Tavern over in Centerville, it's a sacred place. We bow our heads <laughs> and we pray. And James, uh, the banker, prays to receive salvation that day. And, and let me tell you, it was like his eyes were open. When, when we said amen, he, he texted us the next day and he just said, my vision is clearer now. He could see what God has done. Yeah, amen. <laughs> God is at work all around us and he invites us to join him in that work. And, and man, what an exciting day that was, but there's more, there's more and there's more in store for you. Will we watch and pray and pay attention to where God is at work and will we join him in what he is doing to his glory and not our own? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and love. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Lord, we thank you that that is not an event that that's, uh, goodness and glory is in the past, Lord, but in the present, we can take hold of that forgiveness of sins. We can take hold of that resurrection life. And I pray that through your church, you would continue to bring more and more people into the kingdom to bring salvation, to bring light into darkness. And I pray that just as you did with Philip, you would do it through us, ordinary, flawed individuals, Lord, as we yield ourselves to the leading of your spirit. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.